Well, the mom that we're going to be looking at this Mother's Day is known only to us as the wife of Manoah or as the mother of Samson. In other words, as we dive into her story, one of the things you're going to realize is that unlike so many of the other moms in the Bible, God has ordained that we not know the name of this woman, but instead we know her as the wife of or as the mother of. And it's kind of curious when you think of how highly exalted this lady is in the scriptures. And I say that because, first of all, the angel of the Lord, who I think is the Lord himself, that's my take on that, appears to this woman not once, but twice. So now just run back through the Bible and count how many other women that he's done that for. This is a highly exalted lady. And not only that, but when he appears to her, if you've done your personal worship, you know he comes to her and says, hey, you know what? I am going to heal you of your infertility. I am going to cure you of your barrenness, which as a very important side, is a Mother's Day issue. It's an issue for a lot of couples. And it's an issue too, because when you go to the Bible and you say, you know what? I want to study about the moms of scripture. Okay, well, guess what? Lots of them have stories just like this lady who begin or which begin in barrenness, in infertility. Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. Rachel, the wife of Jacob. Now, hang on a second. Who are those ladies? They're the wives. They're the mothers of the patriarchs of Israel. Now you skip the wife of Manoah for a second. Go forward. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. You've got Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus himself. And I understand that she wasn't barren, but I want you to think about supernatural conceptions with me for a second because that's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at. And I defy you to find a more supernatural conception than that. But see, here's the difference between every one of those women that I just named and the wife of Manoah, who frankly falls into that class. Same deal, same healing, same exaltation. Okay, we know the names of all those other ladies. We don't know the name of this woman. It's sort of like her name, her identity in some sense, has somehow been swallowed up in being the wife of or being the mother of. And I I wonder if some of you don't feel like that sometimes. It's like somewhere amidst all the peanut butter and jelly and, and all of the carpooling and soccer and all of that other stuff, you know, like you've been lost. And I think there's a sense in which God's coming to you through this story and saying, oh, but not to me. This most highly exalted of women is most highly exalted as a wife and as a mom. Let that encourage your heart today. The Lord sees you. But there's another lesson in this, and this is the lesson that I want us to focus on most primarily today. This story comes and it teaches us something, and by us I mean all of us. Okay, wives, husbands, moms, dads, parents, kids, rich, poor, young, old, all of us. The story comes to us and it teaches us that with God, there's always hope. There is always hope and it teaches us that hope has a name. And his name, it's singular, it's particular, It's Jesus. It doesn't come to us and say, well, there's always hope because you have this option and 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 this option. You've got a whole menu full of options to look to for hope in this life. No, no, no. Sorry. With God, there's always hope. Hope's name is Jesus. 
And that is an absolutely wonderful thing. The story of the wife of Manoah is found in Judges chapter 13. And give you a little historical context, you understand where this story happens, at least within the context of the history of Israel. This happens after Moses has delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. You'll recall that story. And then they go out and they wander around in the desert for 40 years. You know that as well. And then he leads them right up to the border of the promised land and Moses dies. And Joshua takes over. And he brings the people of Israel up into the land of Canaan, right above the Dead Sea in the southern part, and then from the south to the north, they conquer it militarily. They drive everybody out, or well, most everybody out, and they divide the land up into allotments for tribes and whatnot, and then Joshua dies, and then what happens politically within the context of the nation of Israel is that they are then governed over periodically, meaning not all of the time, by a succession of judges. So God raises up a judge to deliver them and to rule over them, and then he rules and delivers them. He rules over them, and the judge dies, and a period goes by, as we'll see, and he raises up another one, and a period goes by, and then he raises up another one. The last judge in the book of Judges is the son named Samson of this dear woman and of this dear wife that we're studying today. And her story begins in Judges chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, where we read this, and it's a familiar refrain in the book of Judges. It says this, And the people of Israel, again, that's the key word, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, why is that the key word? Because there is a pattern that runs all the way from the beginning of this book all the way to this story, actually, in which what happens is, God raises up a deliverer and a judge, and that judge reigns and rules over the people of Israel, and as long as he's in place, the Israelites worship and serve the true and the living God. But then here's what happens. As soon as the judge dies, what do they do? Well, they do what we just read here. The people of Israel, again, because it happens again and again and again and again and again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And by that, it means they worshiped the false gods of the pagan peoples that also occupied their lands, After which, in every such cycle, you then read what, well, we read next. So here's what the Lord does in every case. So the Lord gave them into the hands, in this case, of the Philistines. So he raises up a judge, a judge delivers and rules over Israel. As long as he's in place, everything's cool. They worship and serve the true and the living God. They forsake the gods of the land. As soon as the judge dies, they go into idolatry, and God does what? He turns them over to their enemies, in this case, the Philistines, and on this occasion, please don't miss this, for 40 years. That's not a little bit of time. It's the length of an entire generation. And you've got to pause and go, now, why does he do that? Because he's mad at them. He's been hurt and his feelings are hurt. And he said, well, that's it. You're going to endure some pain. Is that it? He brings evil upon them solely for the purpose of bringing evil upon them. He brings evil upon them for the purpose of then bringing them good. He turns them over to their enemies that they might be broken, that they might be made humble, that they might realize that life is not found in the little gods of this world, but it's found only in Him, and that they might return to Him in faith and in repentance. And He doesn't just do that for them back then. He does that for me, and He does that for you now. He seeks to break us to humble us in love, to detach us from the little gods of this world that bring slavery and death, 
so that we too might return to him in repentance and in faith and find in him the only source of freedom and life and hope. Hope has a name, and it's Jesus. And so that's what's happened thus far in the story. And let me tell you what you're led to expect will now happen next. Because look, you've seen it as you've studied through this book of Judges again and again and again and again. I mean, you get to Sam, or, uh, Samson and it's like, yawn, you know, here we go again. And you know the cycle. Judge dies. They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord turns them over to their enemies. And here's what happens next. They repent. They get the message. They're humbled. They're broken. They return to the Lord in faith, and the Lord raises up a deliverer. And Okay, but that's not what happens this time. And it's kind of jarring if you've been reading through the book. And it leaves you wondering, well, good grief, what's going to happen? Because these people do not repent this time. They don't return to the Lord. And I think that speaks of how hopeless they are. It tells us something about their darkness. It tells us something about their despair. It tells us something about the degree of hopelessness that they have fallen into the pit of. It tells us, practically speaking, that the Philistine dominance over Israel is so high and that their spiritual condition and morale is so low that they do not believe at this point that even Yahweh God can deliver them and they have no strength by which to even cry out to Him for that deliverance. They've given up. So what will the Lord do? It's a great answer. He delivers them anyway. The point being that with God there is always hope. And hope's name is Christ, and his story is embedded in this story. If you're looking for it, you'll see it. So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord again gave them over into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But this time, unlike all of the previous occasions that this has occurred, they do not repent. They do not believe there is any hope, even in God at this point. But there is. But they're wrong. For then we read that there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites. Now, how many of you find that sentence particularly interesting? Anybody? Like you read that and go, yes, that's the stuff I'm looking for in the Bible. You don't, right? You read that and go, and what's next? You know, let's get to the real stuff. But it's actually very significant. Again, Joshua comes into the land, he conquers it. He takes it, he allots plots of land to the various tribes of Israel, and he allotted one to the Danite tribe. Now, where was it originally? It was very near the coastline. It was not too far from modern-day Tel Aviv, actually. When we go to Israel on our Israel trips, we go and we visit Tel Dan. Where is that? That's way up in the northern part of the land. Now, why is that? Because the tribe of Dan was so oppressed, they were so afflicted, they were so unable in their own power and in their own strength to conquer the Philistines and the gods of this world. They had been so raided upon. They had been so devastated. They just quit said, forget it, we're moving, we're leaving, we're getting out of here. And they went all the way to the northern part of the land and they found a city that they like and there's water and it's nice and it's lush. It really is a beautiful site. You need to go with us sometime. And they conquered this city. They renamed it Dan and that became where they resided. But this story takes place while they're still down by Tel Aviv. And they are neighbors to the Philistines. 
So what does that mean for this particular man and for his family? Okay, if all Israel is in a hopeless state, they're in the most hopeless of states. If all Israel is afflicted, these are the most afflicted Israelites, the most vulnerable. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and that name must have mocked him every time he heard it because it means rest, and he doesn't know anything about rest. It's the exact opposite of what he's grown up with and has experienced. And then as if things could not get any worse for this guy and for his wife. We read, And his wife, this wife of Manoah that we're looking at, was barren, and she had no children, which was an even more devastating diagnosis then than it is today, because back then your value and worth as a wife and as a person, if you were a woman, was tied to your ability to have kids. painful deal. There's a very real sense in which the condition of this mom and of this wife, who is the most highly exalted of people, is emblematic in some sense of the condition of the whole nation, powerless, disgraced, and without hope. Nothing to look forward to but extinction. And yet with God, there's always hope because Well, as we continue in the story, it now says, and the angel of the Lord. Like in the darkest moment, now he's going to show up. At the bottom of the pit, he appears. And he appears not to Manoah, which throws Manoah off. You kind of get the sense of that as you read through this story. Like, hey, wait wait a minute, you know, I'm not so sure that God would appear to you, honey. But, I mean, he appears mostly to, you know, like me, you know, which probably didn't win him a lot of favors. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, to the nameless wife of Manoah. Great honor in that. And he said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. I think she was probably aware of that. But it's nice to know that God was aware of that too. And here's what he's going to do about it. But you shall conceive and bear a son. So what is he saying? He's saying, I am going to do for you, wife of Manoah, mother-to-be of Samson, what I did for Sarah, what I did for Rebecca, what I did for Rachel, what I will do for Hannah, what I will do for Elizabeth, what I will do for Mary. I am going to do what I alone as God can do. I am going to take that which is dead. And you know it, your husband knows it, your family knows it, every specialist you've seen knows it. We're all in agreement on that. And apart from my direct intervention and work in your life, it is hopeless. But It's not hopeless because I'm going to take that which is dead and I'm going to bring life out of it. You need to hear resurrection in that. Our God is a God from beginning to end of resurrection. He takes dead things and he brings them to life. And what you need to do is you work through stories and studies like this in your personal worship to get ready for Sunday is you've got to stop. And I know you're on like verse three or whatever, and you got 25 or however many verses to cover. I understand that. But you've got to stop and reflect on that for a second and step out of that story and step into your story and say, you know what? Through faith in Jesus, that God that I'm reading about in this story, that's my God too. And he majors on bringing life out of death. And you say, all right, well, Tom, here's the obvious question then. Are you saying that he'll take whatever my barrenness is, whatever's dead in my life, and literally bring it back to life like he did for this woman? I'm not going to promise you that. But I also am not going to promise you that he won't. 
I think sometimes those words of Jesus are very stinging to me. You have not because you ask not. We come and we take this supernatural God and we say, ah, there's no way he's going to do that. Let's not even ask him for it. Well, what if he will? I mean, is it going to wear him out? Is that, is that too much for him? I mean, is it, you know, is he not capable? Of course he is. But even if he doesn't cure your literal barrenness, he will yet bring life out of it. I mean, I think it's obvious that God does not show up to every barren woman in Israel the way that he does for this particular barren woman. But think about the pain and the suffering of the other ones that he did not do, and think about how he can bring life out of that. What is the issue here for those ladies? The issue is one of identity. And they're told by their culture that they need to find their significance, they need to find their importance, they need to find their identity, and it's all wrapped up. Good grief, what pressure. And your ability to have, not even just a girl, but sons. Is there not life when your search for significance in something other than Christ dies and you're caused through that death to look for your importance and truly then to find it in Him. That's life too. That's abundant and eternal. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. This is years ago. He was like in his mid-60s at the time, and he had struggled with pornography as a porn addict since he was like 16 or something. So, you know, do the math. Lots of years. And it was like a wrecking ball in his life, which incidentally is the way that it works. So like if you're out there and this is your deal and you think that you can somehow be the exception to the rule, you won't be. It will bring you death upon 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 death. It is a constant river of death. And it was for this guy. It really was. And I remember meeting with him, and I said, okay, listen, I'm going to say something that sounds a little bit crazy. I don't want you to throw anything at me just yet. I want you to hear me all the way out and at least catch the reasoning before you pass judgment on the statement. I said, there is a, I wouldn't have wished this addiction upon you. I, I grieve for the death that it has brought you and your family. But there is a sense in which I'm oddly, cautiously thankful for it. And I said, and here's why. Because out of this death is coming life. And here's how it's coming. This addiction, these deaths are forcing you to do something you wouldn't do otherwise, which, by the way, is something everyone who follows Jesus should do. Every single one of us. It forces you, I said to my friend, to get up every single day and just confess in all honesty and faith before the Lord, I am empty and I need to be made full. I have no power, so I need your power I am overrun by my passions. I need to die to my passions. I said it forces you to get up every day and to die to yourself and then by the power of the Holy Spirit and in community with a group of guys who are totally committed to you to say, all right, today I walk with Jesus. And then the next day to do the same thing. And again and again and again. I said it's an odd, ironic form of grace in your life. God has taken death, and out of it, even that, he's bringing life. We belong to a God who brings life out of death, guys, and he's not just their God back then. He's our God now, and so as a result, there's always hope, and the hope is found in Christ and his story is all over this story. Again, we read, So the angel of the Lord 
who is none other than God himself, I think, appeared to the woman, known only as the wife of Manoah, and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son, because I am God. So like, this isn't too big for me, and I'm just going to miraculously cure your barrenness and heal it for my sake and for your, glory, your sake as well and for the sake of this people. Therefore, he continues, and now he gives her a bunch of instructions. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. And you're like, yeah, I know that's not good for the baby. Well, it's not. But that's not the reason. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God. That is to say, this boy is going to be separated unto God. From when? From the womb. So the conception has not even occurred yet, and he's giving her instructions so that she can adhere to these Nazarite rules, if you will, by which the son who will be conceived within her and whose life, according to this, begins at conception, will be adherent to those rules from the moment of his conception forward. Well, that's another, another Mother's Day issue, isn't it? in which there is great hope. And his name is Jesus. And I hope you hear that. And now notice what this boy is born to do. He shall begin, interesting word, to save, to bring salvation to Israel. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, but he will only begin to save Israel, which implies what? That he will die trying. He will give his life in the process. And if you're familiar with the way that he died, by the way, he died in a cruciform position, did he not? Between the pillars? He brings down a temple in the process, does he not? He dies in darkness, for he's been blinded. He is everywhere through his story, or at least in many places, a picture of Jesus. And so then this Samson, whose miraculous birth is foretold to his highly exalted mother by an angel before he's even conceived, and who will come forth from the womb with the specific purpose of bringing salvation to his people, okay, well, his death, too, is gestured at, it's spoken of, at the beginning of his life. And so upon hearing this, the wife of Manoah does what, you know, I mean, anybody would do. She runs to find her husband, and she says to her husband, you're not going to believe this, which incidentally is pretty much the way that it worked out. You're not going to believe this. A man from God just met with me, and he looked amazing. He looked fearsome. He looked awesome. He looks incredible. I mean, like, if you've ever imagined what the angel of the Lord must look like, okay, that's this guy, and he said to me that God is going to cure my barrenness, that we're going to have a son, and, and, and that this son is going to be separated unto God from birth, that he is being born for the specific purpose of saving or, well, beginning to bring salvation to our people from the Philistines. Awesome! And if you've done your personal worship this week, then you know that Manoah says, well, all right, then praise Jesus. No, it's not what he says. You can kind of sense maybe his uh, reservations, let's say, his incredulity to some degree. <laughs> what he does is he doesn't just accept that and go, okay, well, fantastic. 
He prays that God will send the man back, and this time hopefully at least to him, so that he can get to the bottom of all of this. He can see this person for himself. He can decide who he really is. And incidentally, honey, I'm not sure that you know you asked all the right questions. I mean, there was a lot of information that I think would be helpful to us, assuming that this is actually the case. And so I've got a bunch of questions that I'd like to ask of this man of God. And so he prays that the man of God would be sent by God back, not that the one who is the angel of the Lord or even appears to be would come back, and the angel of the Lord comes back, but not to Manoah, to his precious wife, who says, don't move. And she runs off to get Manoah. Oh, you didn't believe me? (laughs) Hang on. Please don't move. So she runs off and gets him. She comes running back with him. And notwithstanding his appearance, which she's already described as being awesome, Manoah treats him like he's a man, maybe a prophet. So he says to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman, he says. And what does the Lord say? It's awesome. He says, I am. Now, I just am all over that because every time I read I am, I'm thinking Moses, burning bush, memorial name of God. God, what is your name, Moses says. And God says, okay, let me drop my memorial name for all generations upon you, including Manoah's generation, incidentally. And Manoah will ask the same question here in a second. It's I am. So the Lord says, I am, and that's right over Manoah's head. And he begins to ask him questions, and and the Lord basically says, I I don't know why you had me come back here. Everything you needed to know, I I told your wife I'm like an excellent communicator, and that was it. So... That's all the info you get, bud. And so then Manoah says, well, okay, okay, uh, then what is your name? Sounds a little like Moses. And I'm picturing the Lord kind of scratching his head going, I just gave that to you a second ago. I guess that just right over your head. So, all right. He says, what is your name so that when it comes true, we can credit you with this? He's treating him now like a prophet. And the Lord says, I don't know why you've asked me for my name, seeing that it is wonderful. It is beyond human comprehension. Now, there's a clue. And Manoah says, well, you know, since you're here anyway, why don't you stay for dinner? And so the Lord says, well, you know, I'm not really interested in dinner, but here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in worship. Kind of an interesting little side thought there. As we think about our life, and even as we think about our worship, what is the Lord interested in? What is He raising up? What does He say in John 4? What is the Father seeking, so saith the Son? He's seeking worshipers. He says, well, I'm interested in worship, so why don't you make a burnt offering? So they make a burnt offering. And as the flames are going up into the sky... What does the Lord do? Fire, incidentally, being an emblem of judgment. He enters into the flames, and he ascends through the flames into heaven. And all the angels went, that was a very cool move, Jesus. (laughs) That was totally awesome. Like, I did not see that coming at all, and that was sweet. And just look at the faces of these humans. They're like, and then they just go face down, and Manoah comes unglued. And he says now, oh, that was the Lord. And his wife says, really? It took you that long to figure that out? I mean, like, (laughs) what is the matter with you, man? 
I mean, I told you that he looks awesome and fearsome. I mean, did you not, like you saw him, didn't you? Do we need to take you to lens crafters? I mean, what's your problem? Didn't you see this? He drops the I am on you. I mean, I realize it was subtle, but good grief. You ask him for his name, which I was stunned, like I'm dying inside as you're saying it, because I can't believe you missed it the first time, but you just went all in on it. So you ask him his name, and he tells you it's beyond human comprehension. You didn't get it then either, right? So he's got to enter into the flames and ascend before us before you clued in. And I don't appreciate you doubting me. I don't appreciate you thinking to yourself, well, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, but maybe not you, honey. No, no, no. Not into that. She could have totally unloaded on him. And he is totally deserving of it. What does she do? Did you study it this week? Did you allow it to study you this week? She is a humble exceedingly gracious, amazing lady, amazing person. She did for her husband what I need to do for my wife, what you need to do for your wife or husband, what we need to do for each other in the humility of her own brokenness, recognizing she too blows it at times and misses things and probably needs some new glasses by which to view life and so on and so forth. She ministers to the heart of her husband, which is really stressed in the moment, like he thinks they're going to die because they've seen God, and she graciously reasons him through, frankly, his ignorance. She's quite a lady, this lady. The story ends in verses 24 and 25, where we read in the woman, this person whose name we are not given, for she's highly exalted as wife and mother in particular and on purpose, bore a son and called his name Samson. And here's all that we know about his childhood. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And then at the beginning of his public ministry, what do we read? The Spirit comes upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, and then it gives the geographical location. For there's a geography to this story that actually matters. That book of maps at the back of the Bible, use it. It's helpful. And if you know the story of this man, in his life, and particularly in his cruciform death, that is his moment of greatest victory in his story, against the enemies of God, by far. This guy begins to deliver Israel from the Philistines. God uses him to take a completely dead and hopeless people and situation and to infuse into it hope and life. The point, I think, being that with God there's always hope, and and hope's name is Jesus and his his story is all throughout the story. Jesus is born, I hope that you saw this, of a miraculous conception announced in advance to his, at least today, highly exalted mom, who then runs off to find Joseph, her betrothed, from whom she would have had to legally seek divorce to get rid of, to break relationship with. And she tells him all about it. Hey, you're not going to believe this. And guess what? He doesn't. It takes an angel appearing to him (laughs) to convince him of that, which, you know, I mean, I kind of get it. It's quite a story. And then at the birth of Jesus, it's announced to the shepherds by the angels, what? 
Unto you this is born this day in the city of David a Savior. It's okay. Who is Christ the Lord. He is born for the specific purpose of bringing salvation to His people, to the true Israel, to those who believe in Him. And His parents take Him to the temple and they present Him to the old priest, Simeon. And what does Simeon say to Mary? Well, among other things, he says that, that in the ministry of this child, this Messiah, a sword will pierce her heart. What is he saying? He will die in this endeavor. And you, Mary, will live to see it. With one exception, all that we know about his childhood is that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then at the beginning of his public ministry, like unto a dove, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And then how does Jesus reveal himself? By doing wonderful things. He says to everybody, look, you don't have to believe that I am the Son of God and the Messiah and Savior of the world simply because I say so, but please do take a look at the things that I do because they speak to that reality. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the paralyzed guys get up. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. And then he says, and you too will kill me, but I have the power of life in me. I lay down my life, I take it up again, because I am God who brings life out of death. So you will kill me, and on the morning of the third day, I will come forth. In fact, he says, I am, hear the words, the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And Jesus too dies on a cross to effect our deliverance. And it's a deliverance that began in his life, death, burial, and resurrection and will be fully appropriated and realized with all of its benefits upon his return. So no matter how dark and hopeless things look to us, with God there's always hope. And hope's name is Christ. And so I want to ask you as I wrap it up, what are the dead and hopeless things in your life? And what are you doing with them? Specifically, are you kind of going, hey, wait a minute, through faith in Jesus, this God is my God, and he's a God who brings life out of death. He majors in it, sometimes literally, and I need to ask him for that. But always he brings life out of death. As we bring the dead and hopeless situations in our life before him and turn them over to him and allow him to do great and wondrous things in our lives as we find our significance in Him, as we find our identity in Him, as we find our joy in Him, our health in the broadest sense in Him, our eternal life, significance, everything in Him. He's coming to us, and through the dead and hopeless things, He's saying, look, I'm breaking you, little God by little God, from the gods of this world that I might take you through repentance and faith to myself, and in me you will find life. Okay? So I challenge you with that today. I'd like to have the wives and moms stand, if you would, and I want to pray for you guys. And there are a variety of different kinds of moms. You can be spiritual moms and all of that, like Matt said. Um, We just want to thank the Lord for you and ask His blessings on you. Okay? Father, we do lift these dear ladies before you, and we thank you for their humble ministry in each one of our lives. 
Lord, for the ways that they tirelessly pour themselves out, ultimately in service to you, but boy, how we benefit. God, I pray that through the story of this other mom, this other wife, that you would impress upon them the dignity and the value and the exaltation that is found in their quiet and often unheralded labors. We pray that if they feel lost in all of that, that they would sense that in you they are found in all of that. And we pray, Lord, for them and for all the rest of us as well, that whatever has died, whatever seems hopeless, we might wake up and realize that in Jesus we have hope. And that our Savior is in the business now and throughout all of eternity of bringing life out of dead things. Encourage our souls with that reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.